Blog Talk Radio. Nephew Blaze and Rye on the ones and twos. You're listening to Blaze and Rye Radio on this first Monday after the clocks went backwards an hour. Um, people have been acting quite crazy around New York City today. Uh, so today is November fourth, two thousand thirteen. So get your uh, get get your writing hands ready to vote tomorrow. Uh, go practice our American civic duty to get out there and vote tomorrow on election day, a bunch of mayoral race tomorrow. Uh, but that is exciting, but that's not nearly as exciting as what is about to happen. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the show, it is the legendary, the one and only Mr. Tommy James. Tommy, how are yes. you? How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. I tell you what, I hope to God we're alone now because I have had such a strange day. I think people have lost their minds with this this time change here. Yes, right. Well, I think we're alone now. Okay, so, yes, yes, I got you. Well, how are you? It's great to talk with you. Oh, I'm okay, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. I have so much I want to get into with you. Uh, so I, I just want to mention that you have this wonderful new book out called Me, the Mob, and the Music. Uh, I've been reading it. It's incredible. It's a great read. It's uh, it's so well written. And this is the first time you've written a book, correct? That's right. It's the first time I've been an author, and I thank you very much. That's a great plug. And we've had just an amazing reaction from both the fans and from the media with it. Um, it's basically an autobiography. Um, the reason for the provocative title is that, uh, um, unbeknownst to most of the public and, and to us, when we first signed with Roulette Records, um, the, the label that we had the bulk of our hits uh, with, um, Roulette Records, um, in addition to being um, a functioning record company, a pretty good little independent label, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. Mm-hmm. And that made our life really interesting. And so uh, the essence of the book is about, uh, uh, you know, this very crazy and tumultuous relationship with roulette and dangerous relationship at times uh, with, uh, you know, having a career in rock and roll with this sinister story going on behind us we really couldn't talk about. Yeah, and I read that you had to wait until every last one of that uh, crime family was deceased before well, you could the, the ones that, your... yeah, the ones that were up at roulette. You're quite right. The uh, the uh, uh-huh. ones that I called the roulette regulars. Um, uh, we went, you know, it's funny because when we started out writing this book, it really was going to be a book about music. It was going to be uh, this is about eight years ago, and uh, we were going to call it Crimson and Clover, and we were going to talk about the hits and writing the songs in the studio and so forth. And we got about a third of the way into the book, and we realized that if we don't tell the roulette story, you know, we're, we're you know the whole story that we are cheating ourselves and everybody else. But the problem was that some of these guys were still walking around. And so we uh, we put it on a shelf for 
a couple of years, uh, about three years, and then finally in um, uh, December of '05, the last of the roulette regulars, as we called them, passed on, and we felt like we could finish it. So it took us another uh, almost four years to finish it properly and just and, and working on it incrementally and doing it right. And um, uh, finally, uh, the book is released uh, as soon as we were done by Simon and Schuster, which was kind of amazing because they usually do. Um, you know, presidential memoirs and things like that. And we were really blown away that they took our book. And then we started getting calls for the movie rights and the uh, Broadway rights. So it's going to be a film now uh, uh, produced by uh, Barbara Defina, who did Goodfellas and and, uh, Casino and Hugo two years ago with Martin Scorsese. And so we're really, really amazed by the reaction to all this and very pleased. Now, you say that you were uh, put in a somewhat dangerous situation by being on roulette records. Uh, what are some of the more, uh, what are some of the times that you were put in jeopardy? I read somewhere that one time you had to go record an album in Nashville because there was a hit out for you in New York. Is that true? Well, not out for me, there was, but uh, well, let, me, uh, let me give you the little history there. <laughs> What it basically, uh, uh, they let us know early on that, um, uh, well, you know, we, we, we would see, we would meet people up in Morris Levy's office. Morris Levy was the head of the label. And we would meet people in Morris's office and quite literally two weeks later, you know, see him on TV, on the news being, you know, shagged out of a, of, of a, of a warehouse in New Jersey in handcuffs. And we say, isn't that the guy we just met up at Morris's office? And, you know, that kept happening. So we, we really, uh, uh, you know, began to understand, you know, who we were rubbing shoulders with. And, um, but they let us know early on that, uh, getting mechanical royalties just wasn't going to happen. You know, I, I guess you've heard the story about Jimmy Rogers, who was an artist on roulette in the fifties. And uh, uh, Jimmy Rogers uh, sued him and and went after him for his royalties, which he wasn't getting. And um, uh, in the early 60s, actually the middle 60s, uh, he was left for dead on an L.A. freeway uh, by oh these guys who, 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 who beat him up and, and basically... Uh, um, you know, ended his life and his career. Not his life, thankfully, but uh, he recovered, but he he never really got it back. He looked like a stroke victim from that point on and uh, was really very sad. And they let us know that that, you know, if we pushed it too far, that's where it could go. And the problem was that we were having such success on roulette that, um, you know, we constantly had to... Uh, uh, ask each other, do we want to risk our life and, and and attempt to get off, uh, take our life in our hands and, 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 and try to get out of the label, which we probably could have done legally. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we but, or do we stick it out because we were having such great success with roulette? And um, uh, I think we made the right decision. I, you know, we were, uh, I get to tell this story, number one. <laughs> number one. Right. And uh, of course, we were making money from other directions, you know, like touring and and uh, BMI and commercials and all that. But but uh, it was it was real touch and go there. We were lucky to get out of there in one piece. I definitely want to come back to that in a bit. But you just mentioned the uh, movie and the Broadway show. Now, sure. I'm, I'm just wondering 
who who is going to play you? Nobody has hair like yours. <laughs> well, that's the real challenge is going to be finding somebody who plays guitar as badly as I do. Uh, <laughs> Stop it. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, the, the funny part is that uh, I'm just way too close to it. I, I'm the worst one to ask because. Uh, uh, you know, I'm just way too close to it to know who would be good. I think, frankly, unknowns would be the most believable because uh, because the real star of the show is Morris Levy, and uh, you know he's the uh, uh, you know he's the thug and the gangster who sort of became like a like a father figure, and uh, so there's the, it's it's essentially this relationship between myself and Morris that uh, that that is the story. So I don't yeah. know. It's going to be interesting. Do we have a director in place yet? We've well, let's put it this way: We're, uh, Barbara Defina, who uh, is Martin Scorsese's ex, uh, has a whole lot of people in mind. But we will be making an announcement on both the screenplay writer and the and the director within the next probably six to eight weeks. Oh, great! Well, we'll, we'll be on the lookout for that. Sure. And in the Broadway show, uh, will there be big choreographed musical numbers? Well, the idea is to do the film first. That's what she wants to do. And mm-hmm. uh, Barbara will also be directly involved in, in producing the Broadway show as well. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with uh, the Broadway show is that it's essentially a musical. So it's a very different animal than the movie, which is going to be pretty dark and sinister and really tell the story. The um, the the uh, musical is going to be a lot more lighthearted, and you're going to have you know people dancing, you know, who probably wouldn't be dancing in the movie, you know. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how how they put that one together. But um, uh, you know, this is uh, going to happen after the film. Uh, mm-hmm. She didn't want to do both at the same time because they would bump heads, and she wanted to do the movie first anyway. Fascinating how you have the same story with the book, the movie, and the musical, but told in three very, very different ways. It sounds you're, like. you're quite right on that. And, and one of the things that's interesting is when they do the screenplay, because the screenplay, you know, is not the you know the book was essentially. The, a narrative, you know, and, and describing the things that happened, but they got to tell the same story with dialogue, and that's a that's mm-hmm. a different animal too. And so I'm getting a right. real education uh, in all this, and uh, it's uh, it's very exciting watching all this come together. I listened to you on our good friend uh, David Bowers' show, and you sure. uh, heard the um, the new version of uh, I think we're alone now to close out the movie during the yes. credits. So has it sounds like you've been very hands-on dealing with the uh, the musical aspects of these new right. projects. Is right. arranging for a, a motion picture and a Broadway show much different than arranging your music for a record? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a totally different uh, uh, you know delivery system. Um, all I can say is that um, uh, the music in the movie, of course, you'll have the hits. But there will be some some new songs, and um, um, one of them being a song by the name of Distant Thunder, which was the last song that Morris Levy and I agreed on should be a single. And he was 
he was arrested before we could get it done. <laughs> and wow. so, um, uh, you know, that uh, put a that definitely uh, put a, put a, threw a wrench into that one, and we never mm-hmm. got a chance. We never got a chance to finish the record, and so we're going to actually do that for the uh, for the uh, uh, movie, and it will undoubtedly be on the on a soundtrack album. And then, of course, you you, you uh, hit the nail on the head with the uh, new version of "I Think We're Alone Now," which is going to be the closing credits of the movie. And it's going to, I actually got the original Shondells, the three surviving members, back in the studio oh, wow. to do this. So there's going to be a little bit of history there. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and uh, one more question about the book. You say that every story you told there, there's about 10 you didn't have time for. What's right. one story that you wish you could have gotten in there, but, but it didn't make it? Well, I, I suppose it would have to be one of the uh, instances where, um, you know, we had a, 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 a blowout where Morris and I actually had a blowout. And uh, any any of those times where we were uh, really going at it was uh, could have could have ended very badly for me. Uh, oh dear! I uh, there were several of those, and um, we told one in the book, but there were several others where um, you know we were just not getting paid and uh, mm-hmm. raised a lot of hell about it, and. Um, it could have ended very badly, and I, I those, you know, I'd have to say those were the ones that uh, we didn't talk about every one of them, but there were several of those, and um, wow, you know, so <laughs> it was, uh, it was a very, uh, you know, we were walking on eggshells, and yeah. Uh, no, but yeah, you know, the strange part, the strange part no. about this. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. Well, the strange part about this is when our first record, Hanky Panky, exploded out of Pittsburgh, um, and we went to New York to sell the master, um, we had a yes from, from, you know, literally everybody, Columbia, Epic, RCA, um, Atlantic, uh, I don't know if you remember Kama Sutra Records, where the Love and Spoonful were, and mm-hmm. just a, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and the last place we took the record to was Roulette. And of course, uh, thinking that I went to bed that night thinking that um, you know we were going to have a deal with Columbia RCA, one of the corporate labels, and it was going to be great. And uh, the next morning, about 9 a.m., uh, I get a, I start getting calls from the record companies that had said yes the day before saying, listen, Tom, we got a pass. And I said, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic uh, leveled with us and told us what happened. That Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, called up all the other labels and said, this is my record. Back off. <laughs> and scared them and, and literally backed them all off and we were apparently going to be on roulette records whether we liked it or not. You know, that was the first offer I couldn't refuse. So, um, <laughs> uh, and and the funny part was if, if, if uh, you know, if we had gone with one of the corporate labels, with, especially with a fluky record like Hanky Panky, I can tell you that we would have maybe been a one-hit wonder if we were lucky because we would have mm-hmm. been, 
lost in the numbers, you know, handed over to some A&R guy, and that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from us. At Roulette, they actually needed us. And at Roulette, we were left alone and allowed to be in charge of our own career. That would have never happened at Columbia or RCA. Right. you know what I'm saying? We we were allowed to sort of morph into whatever we could become. And mm-hmm. I know that that's the reason uh, we had so many hits at roulette. Plus, they were, he was always on our back. He was a real slave driver. But I, I know that that would have never happened at, at one of the, the corporate labels. So uh, from a creative standpoint, we couldn't have been in a better place. Plus, we were the biggest artists they had, so we really got the, the you know the the keys to the candy store. So, um, you know, yeah. it's a real kind of love hate relationship that I had there with Morris. Yeah, I read that. Uh, I, I heard you say that you had this love hate relationship. It was a strange relationship. What did you love about him, and what did you hate about him? Well, I, you know, Morris was this amazing. Uh, bunch of characteristics that that on one hand he could be so generous and and understand your situation and hand you uh, twenty thousand dollars uh to to somebody he barely knew and on the other hand he would be you know you know he'd cut your heart out for five thousand dollars as far as money was concerned and then you know he was such a control freak this guy was about six foot five he was right out of the movies, right out of central casting. He looked like uh, every mob guy you ever saw, and 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 talked like it too. He had a voice like this, and uh, and yet he could hear hits. You know, he he could hear hits, and and uh, uh, he he would amaze me sometime with his uh, ability to hear what was wrong with a record, and he'd put it in real plain street level terms. But he was all. I, I, he was never wrong. Mm-hmm. And by the but by the same token, he ha, he was completely insensitive to, uh, you know, anybody who was trying to, uh, um, uh, you, you know, uh, to write something a little more philosophic. Uh, you know, he he was black and white. There was no gray with Morris. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying. And he now he was. Great as far as uh, getting records played on the radio. That they loved him out there. They, uh, 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 he was a one man. He could make the earth shake if he stood up and 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 made stuff happen. Uh, but yeah. you didn't want him as an enemy. You really yeah, didn't, didn't want him ever, as an enemy. He didn't ever make you actually carry out any non-musical mob duties. Were no, 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 no. No, it was. Uh, it was strictly. It was strictly uh, uh, music and rock. We what we had to do is pretend like we didn't see a lot of stuff right. that was going on up there. Uh, he, you know, we were never directly involved, although he introduced me to all of his friends. And uh, <laughs> uh-huh. there's, I put it in the book. There's the scene in the in the movie and and in the book where I I met all the heads of the family and um uh i just uh, you know and i recognized him from tv and and didn't really know what to say i just uh, was sort of shaking in my boots there but uh um, 
you know, and I, the, the thing of it is, we were, in one way, we were very well treated, and in another, though, that there was this unspoken truth that don't ever push it too far. So it was a real mixture yeah. of, of feelings and, and uh, emotions about the whole situation. And plus the fact we couldn't talk about it. Right. Yeah, we couldn't say mm-hmm. a word about this stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, Tom, that's... That you mentioned that you had uh, problems getting paid. I read that there were possibly 30 to $40 million in royalties that right. you never received. Is that true? That's right. Uh, I tell the story in the book how our accountant finally uh, uh, got a, a handle on how much money we were talking about because uh, it was it was pointless trying to find out from the pressing plants and the um, and and the books he had twelve sets of books you know <laughs> was, uh, but um um uh so finally our our uh, accountant went to the place where they had uh the labels printed mm-hmm. nobody had ever done that before, and he got an honest count from the uh the number of labels. And it added up to between 30 and 40 mil that we just weren't going to see. And Morris threatened him. He, he went to him and confronted him with that. And he says, you ever use that, they'll, they'll fish you out of the East River. And he meant it. <laughs> Good Lord. That is I mean, and, and that sort of put an end to any audits that we were uh, contemplating. Yeah. So anyway, that's, thankful- that's, that's what it was like. But you know, by the same token, we sold 110 million records up there, right? And, um, and had 23 gold singles. So I mean, I, I you know, I, I, it's it's this mixture of feelings. It always comes back to that. And plus the fact that if, if it hadn't have been for Morris Levy, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James, right? So I always uh, have to, every time I go to say something really nasty about Morris, I got to remember that. <laughs> right. Um, uh, along with that mixture of feelings, I heard you say that you're you're both very thankful and in, in a way regretful. What do you mean by that regarding your relationship with Morris Levy? Well, I'm thankful for the kind of success we had and the, the records we sold, and and uh, but I'm, I also uh, feel uh, I feel bad that Morris um, just never. Never really became a person. He became mm-hmm. he he was this, you know, and I he just stayed down. You know, he he was a pretty dark character that never really, um, you know. I, I asked him one time. I, I we we used to go up to his farm, and I, I asked him one time. I, you know, we were both sipping brandy, and it was like three in the morning, and you know, he used to have a big farm up in upstate New York and 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 my wife and I used to stay up there and, and Morris uh you know the wives would go would go to bed and Morris and I would sit up and talk and um uh I asked him one time I said you know you're a walking computer I've watched you do these uh do the music business for so long you instantly know if a deal is good or bad and I said why do you hang out with these people that's yeah. a dumb question. Why do you why do you why do you hang out with these people? You don't need them. And he looked at me like, uh, 
what the hell are you talking about? And uh, finally, he he looks down at the floor and he starts to laugh. And he says, uh, well, I'll tell you the truth. He says, these are the people I grew up with. These are the people I came off the street with. He says, I've known some of these guys all my life, speaking of the, the wise guys. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I, I just thought that was an incredible idea for a song in the... Uh, in the in the Broadway show, you know, that's he says that's who I am, and that was probably the most honest answer I ever got out of him. Uh huh. That's just who I am. Oh, I like that's that. who I am. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, can I just say that the prologue to your book is the greatest prologue I've ever read. It's uh, you have that moment with uh, the show in Chicago, the day that you find out that right. Morris is probably going to die soon. And that moment with the young reporter in the dressing room right. um, was was is the introduction to the book, and that was so fascinating to me. And I, I that actually happened. That, that, yeah, that actually happened just like that too. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I assume that's probably what you needed in that moment too to to talk about him. Uh, what, what was describe that moment for our listeners? Sure. Well, um, uh, the moment you're talking about, what happens is. Uh, um, I had been told as I'm leaving for Chicago because we have a concert in Chicago. This is in 1990. This was the day he died, and he he died. By the way, he was he was uh, sentenced to 10 years in prison, and he died of cancer before he could serve any time. And mm. the day he died, I was in Chicago. I had started off that day. Uh, uh, you know, packing and leaving the, leaving my home in New Jersey, and just as I'm about to walk out the door, the phone rings, and it's my accountant who uh, was also Morris's accountant, and said, "You know, Morris is asking for you." And he says, "If you want to see him, you better get up here right now, up to his farm." He died up at his farm, and I and I said, "I'm I I got to catch an airplane. I'm I'm playing in Chicago," and I said, "I'll be up there as soon as I get back tomorrow morning." So um, he said, well, okay. And I took off and went to the airport and got on a plane and went to Chicago. And I mm -hmm. uh, did the gig that night, and, and it was a, a really nice theater in, in you know uh, downtown Chicago. And I um, uh, get off stage, and I go back to the dressing room, and there's a, a young guy there who's who's a... From a disc jockey from a radio station, and he's a lot younger than me. You know, he's he's from a, a, a current pop station, and uh, um, I'm doing an interview with him. And right in the middle of the interview, uh, Linda, my wife, comes in, and she had checked back. She says Tommy Morris died, mm -hmm. and there was just this moment of silence. And so the the DJ says, "Who's Morris?" and uh, I looked at him and I said, well, and then I told him the story, and that is the beginning of the book. And yeah. uh, so that the book then is this story that I tell this reporter, this uh, this uh, disc jockey. And uh, we were there for a couple hours, and I really unloaded on. But that conversation actually happened, and um, it's the beginning of the book, and it will probably be the beginning of the movie too. Oh, great. 
Well, you know, if you're ever looking for a young disc jockey who, uh, <laughs> you know, could play one in the movie, then, yeah. I had you in mind. <laughs> um, so, I, and then the book proceeds to talk about uh, your early life, and, and I just, out of my own curiosity, there's a, a section in the book where you talk about um, playing your first talent show with your band at school, and everyone went nuts. And then uh, you and I believe it was Mike decided you needed to get more guitars and get rid of the horns. I just want to know right. how the horn players reacted when you kicked them out of the band. Well, you know, what you're talking about was when I was 12 years old and I was in seventh grade and we started the Shondells. It wasn't called the Shondells then, but it, it began, uh, you know, my first uh, group. And uh, uh, we basically had to... Uh, rid ourselves of all non-essential instruments, uh, which were, we had a saxophone and a trumpet and a piano player, and it was me and, and the drums, me playing guitar. And so we got rid of uh, all the horns and the unnecessary instruments, and I've, you know, they pretty much knew that they were just going to be playing that one show. And then uh, we got guitars and basses, and, and I began uh, performing then, um, you know, professionally, and uh, I'm surprised my folks didn't send me to my room, actually, but uh, for life. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I was uh, that that was really how it began for me back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan, and that then morphed into uh, um, you know, I, I all through junior high and high school, I played in my cover band. Uh, in the early 60s and uh, finally uh, made my first record Hanky Panky there in Niles and uh, that was the record that two years later um, shocked us by, shocked me by uh, the record being bootlegged in Pittsburgh and going to number one uh, that was a real miracle story a real Cinderella story and mm -hmm. um, that began my career and so my whole life has sort of been a story of, you know, ramping up to all this. You know, it's, it mm -hmm. just seems like there's been one little little uh, miracle after another. And, and so I'm very thankful for all that. Now, for the kids, what does Hanky Panky mean? Well, Hanky Panky was a, was a record that I had record. I had heard another group play. And mm -hmm. it, it turned out that it was on the flip side of a record called That Boy John by a group called the Raindrops. And um, the, the, the record was about John Kennedy, and when he, John Kennedy was, was killed, the record was taken off the market. So it was really, uh, you know, this, this record was really, it was on the B-side of a record that nobody heard of. So uh, I heard this other group play it. It was so obscure, and I saw what the song did to the crowd. You know, they had about six requests for it over and over again. And mm -hmm. I, I said, we got to do that. And so I, we went into, we had a little label deal with a little label called Snap Records in Michigan. And it was, we recorded at the uh, radio station, WNIL. And uh, the producer and the engineer was the, uh, one of the disc jockeys there. And he owned the little label. And we put out Hanky Panky in 1964, and it did okay locally, you know, but didn't blow any doors down. And um, we couldn't get played. We were sort of in between Chicago and Detroit, and so we really couldn't get any airplay. And so we kind of forgot about the record. 
And the following year, 1965, I graduated from high school, and I took my band on the road. We played Chicago and Rush Street and, uh, you know, clubs and got an agent and went. We were playing clubs uh, throughout the Midwest. And I'm playing this dumpy little bar in uh, um, in Wisconsin, in Janesville, Wisconsin, in early 66. And right in the middle of my two weeks, uh, the IRS shuts the guy down for not paying his taxes. Oh, no. And so we were lucky to get our equipment out. And uh, uh, I went back home. We're all feeling like losers. But that's how the good Lord works, because all of a sudden I got home and I got the call that changed my life from Pittsburgh that... Uh, uh, the record, Hanky Panky, one copy of it ended up in a record bin, and they picked it up and played it at the radio station, and um, the thing exploded. The, the switchboard mm-hmm. lit up, and they bootlegged 80,000 of them and sold them in 10 days, and we were sitting at number one. <laughs> wow. How's that for a phone call? <laughs> and, 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 That's you know, one of those only in America stories, you know. Yeah. And, and that began my career. Wow. Uh, who, who would have thought that 80,000? Isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah. yeah. And I, so I, they, I went to Pittsburgh to do some local TV and stuff, and I, I couldn't put the original band back together, so I sort of grabbed the first bar band I could find to be the Shondells. Uh, yeah. And a week later, we're in New York selling the record, and we ended up at Roulette, and that is literally how my career started. That's amazing. Uh, during that early time in your life, I read that uh, you drank a, uh, a pitcher of Budweiser at a frat party and you felt it elevated your performance. Uh, did that ever become a problem later on? Yes, it did. Uh, it until did. 1986, yeah, and then I quit, thank God, and uh, yeah. never picked it up again. Was that hard to do? Um, yes and no. I mean... Uh, I am an alcoholic, and I I, uh, uh, I I went to the Betty Ford Center and stopped it, and it was the best thing I ever did, because uh, always behind my uh, my life was you know was 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 addiction of one kind or another until 1986, and uh, I stopped everything in 1986, and it was. Uh, I will say that it was it, it, to the extent that it, it was it was hard in a certain way, but it's like the good Lord just erased the tapes, and I sort of forgot what it was like to feel high. That's really mm-hmm. the truth, and and so I really didn't have any cravings or anything like that. But I stopped smoking and drinking and partying the same year. My life is real boring now. If you want to, <laughs> my idea of a big night now is watching a fly crawl up a curtain. You know what I mean? <laughs> mine too. Mine too. Uh, you mentioned in your book that your first record player could have been used as a weapon. Did you ever think that that might be an incredible idea for an action movie, like Tommy James and the Turntable of Doom, or something like that? Yeah, all right. Beat somebody over the head. Well, you know, I, I, I was talking about my kitty record player when I was three, four years old. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they were pretty – kitty record players back then were pretty indestructible. And uh, you could definitely have, uh, you know, probably have offed somebody with a needle coming out of that thing. You know, they were like nails. And uh, you had to change them every five or six plays. It was a – you could beat somebody over the head with them. <laughs> did you ever? No, I never did. No, too small. 
<laughs> um, so hey, what do we say? What do we? What do you say? Uh, we switch gears a bit and uh, talk a bit about uh, your Christmas album. I want to play the song "I Love Christmas." Sure. What, what do you want the folks to know about that? Well, first, the, the, a couple of things. First of all, uh, this is the first Christmas album I've ever done, and um, uh, we released it uh, uh, three years ago on CD, and it just uh, has been doing great on CD every Christmas. But uh, this year we uh, put uh, we we pressed uh, a bunch of vinyl, and so it's, we're releasing it this year not only on CD but also on vinyl. And, uh, you know, I haven't been on a vinyl record since 1980, so it's been like 33 years since I've heard my voice on vinyl. But uh, I love vinyl. I'm a vinyl nut. And, you know, yeah. vinyl's making a big comeback, and you know who's buying them? is college kids. Isn't mm-hmm. that amazing? Yeah, uh, I definitely, uh, you know, now that uh, you and Carol have sent me the Christmas album on vinyl, and now I have a whopping two uh, record albums. My yes, um, <laughs> your collection. But, but right? I, well, listen, we're going to see. You know, we, we have our own, but I, I we have our own label, it. and we're, we're going to start. We're going to see if uh, uh, we're going to create a niche market for for new vinyl, and maybe release all my old albums on vinyl again, just to see what happens. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely making a comeback. I go to uh, some friends' uh, holiday parties, and they'll have a. You know, rather than the the iPod or whatever, they'll have the uh, record yes. going in the background. And it's so play. it's such a different experience too, you know, because with uh, with a CD, you know, you put it in a drawer and it disappears, but with a with an album, you know, you you take gently take the the uh, disc out of the sleeve and you lay it on your turntable and you gently put the needle over on the record. And, you know, you can only hear half the album, and then you've got to turn it over. So there's a lot more involvement, you know, direct involvement. And I love the, uh, the sound as, the, as, it, as it comes off the turntable because it sounds much more alive, you know, than a CD. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. you know, that's if you have CDs good equipment. also take an hour and a half to open. That's right. <laughs> that's true. So you can actually read it. You know, in the old days, you know, album art was like, uh, it was an art form, the album cover. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm, we were just really glad to have it out. We're, we're getting a great response from, from the folks. And if any, it's, it's anywhere where vinyl is sold or you can get it on, on uh, Amazon or you can get it at TommyJames.com or any place uh, vinyl is sold. So um, right, I Love so Christmas is the name of the album, and I hope you dig it. Awesome. We're going to play I Love Christmas by Tommy James, and we will be right back with Tommy James.
Yeah, beautiful song, Tommy Thank James. Thank you. I'm, I'm ready for Christmas. Santa Claus. <laughs> I know. It couldn't come at a better time, especially on the vinyl. Just get your record players out and put them on during your holiday. Uh, well, um, thank you. So there's just a couple more things we want to touch on. Uh, you um, you talk about rock and roll being much more than music. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, rock and roll is a lifestyle. It is... Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing it for so long now. I've been, you know, truthfully, this is we're coming up on 50 years. And I uh, can only tell you that I think that the greatest, um, the greatest thing the public can give you, I think the greatest gift that the fans can give you is to make you part of the landscape. And, and I, I really mean that. Uh, it's, uh, when I look out at our concert crowd now, uh, I see three generations of people, which blows my mind, because you know none of us ever figured we'd be doing this this long, right. and and it's such a wonderful feeling. It's uh, um, almost a spiritual experience, you know, when you when you when you play to people that have known you all their lives, and and they've become like extended family, and I I really feel that way about it, and. Uh, you know, the first few years of your life, you think, or your career, you think, well, if I blow it, they can take it all away from me. But, you know, you get to a certain point later on, and, and you just realize you, you just calm down, and, and you're having fun with it. And that's the point I'm at with it now. So I really appreciate the fans. I guess the whole taking it all away thing is even more... Uh potent with you since you, you had the whole Morris Levy thing going on. I like think the, that's probably true. Taking it away immediately. Absolutely yeah. true. By the way, I just want to mention, we're going to be um, uh, doing a YouTube channel starting the first yeah. of the year. We're going to be actually doing little videos of five-minute vignettes on, uh, oh, we're going to take people backstage. We're going to do things like uh, go in the studio and, uh, well, um, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to, sort of recreate some of the uh, older songs, but we're also going to be doing new material as well. You know, YouTube has turned into the greatest radio station in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we're going to do starting the first year. We're just going to have a Tommy James channel on YouTube, and it's going to be, uh, going to be, should be a lot of fun. And that is a partnership between you and YouTube and The Orchard, correct? That's correct. That's right. That's right. Well, that sounds exciting. Uh, and it'll just be at Tommy James will be the YouTube uh, handle? Uh, I bl- uh, yes, yes. And, okay. uh, uh, of course, anybody wants to check us out, you can just come to the website, just TommyJames.com, and it'll, you can get all the information on whatever it is we're doing. So, Tommy, whatever the hell we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been covered by over 300 artists at least. Uh, what was the most surprising for you? You know, the, 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 there's a couple of them. The, the, one, the one of them was REM, who did uh, an incredible job of dragging the line in uh, the Austin mm-hmm. Powers movie. But the other was Prince. A couple of years ago, Prince did Crimson and Clover as his first single from his all-digital album. Nobody had ever released an all-digital album before. Mm-hmm. And um, that year, Prince... And Dolly Parton both did. I can't think of two artists that are further apart. Both did Crimson and Clover, and uh, that just blew my mind. And they both did it great. 
You know, that was yeah. so You know, she did like a country version of it, and Prince did this amazing, very futuristic version of Crimson and Clover that just blew my mind. And uh, that has to be, I think, uh, probably the one that uh, those two, you know, coming out the same year really blew my mind. I hear that Dolly has a big crush on you, too. <laughs> well, listen, you know, what can I say? You know, she and I go back a long way. Mm-hmm. You know, at my favorite restaurant in New York City, there's a, it's called Vinyl in Hell's Kitchen, and there's four bathrooms, and one is Nellie, one is Elvis, one is Cher, and the fourth is Dolly Parton. And oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I'll have to check that one out. Yes. Most I'm, I'm real close to, you know, I'm about a half hour from New York. I'm in North Jersey here, and so oh. I go into New York all the time. I'll check that out. So those were the surprising covers. What, what what would you say was your favorite and least favorite covers? Well, I you know I used to there was a group from England that did Moni Moni. They were called Tight Fit back in the late seventies, and that was pretty pretty interesting version. Um, one of the greatest surprises was when Tiffany and Billy Idol came out with Moni Moni, and I think we're alone now. Uh, the same week. And they went up the charts together like they were holding hands. This was in 87. And, uh, you know, Billy had uh, Moni Moni and and Tiffany had I Think We're Alone Now. And they both went number one, back to back. That had never happened before. That that really was was amazing to me. I just, uh, I could hardly believe that it happened that way. It was just almost poetic. Yeah. And again, two very different artists. Yeah, definitely. Um, And do you have any uh, least favorite covers? Least favorite covers? Geez, I I, well, (laughs) one of the one of them probably has to be the Boston Pops doing Moni Moni. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, I don't know. There was another one. They had Golden Throats out. You know, an album on Rhino Records called Golden Throats, where it had you know Mr. Spock doing you know. you know, serious reading and and but but the the one that cracked me up was uh, uh, Vince Edwards who played the the Doctor Ben Casey doing Mirage. That was one of my least favorites. <laughs> that had to be heard to be believed. That really was amazing. <laughs> and uh, have your songs been sampled by rappers? They must have been by now. Well, Dragon Line was, and I, I'm trying to remember who who had it out. Uh, but, uh, yes, it was, uh, uh, a lot of this stuff has been sampled and of course they don't pay royalties either. <laughs> oh yeah? No? Yeah. The, that's the, the, the rap artists just don't pay royalties. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> uh, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, amazing that these songs have had such longevity and, uh, that's a testament to you and, and your creative well, abilities. Thank you. I, Absolutely. Also, your uh, your voice, your ability to go from uh, very clean and neat to very gritty and raspy uh, from song to song is is amazing. How do you do that? Well, I, you know, I I really believe that the the key to uh, you know keeping your voice in shape is is to not tour that much. <laughs> 
uh, you know, I I am amazed. I don't know how these guys do it, like uh, Rod Stewart and guys like that who go out and yeah. you know play for you know six months at a time every night. I don't know how they'd find me under a trestle somewhere if I ever tried to do that. Uh, I the most I'll do is like one night a week, and I really think that keeps the voice in shape. You use it enough, you know. I, our touring season is basically between you know like March and October. And uh, I, the most I'll do is like one night a week. And I really, I can only do Moni Moni one night. Let's put it that way. The CO2 <laughs> level gets too high. Um, uh-huh. But <laughs> the truth is that, that, you know, I really believe in um, uh, keeping your voice as as good as it can be as long as you can. Because it's like being an athlete when you're out on the road, you know. And yeah. uh, you can really blow your voice real easy. Sure. All right, well, I have several albums in front of me that people can pick up. you got uh, Hold the Fire, your album from 2000. Yeah, that was, uh, we, we actually had three adult contemporary top five records in 06 with that. But, I, you know, we've got uh, several records in the store now with a new D- and a new DVD. Yes, that is the one from The Bitter End. Right. The Bitter End in New York City. We did a live show. And uh, it's on DVD, and uh, that's in the stores now. And so, uh, yeah. Tommy James Greatest Hits Live, and that's uh, at the bitter end. And then Tommy James and the Shondells Live at the bitter end is the DVD. And you got the I Love Christmas on CD and on vinyl. Uh, and also Me, the Mob, and the Music, which is a, an incredible read. Um, it, all of these are worth picking up um, for sure. And the, the bitter end, I'm quite partial to because I know that venue and I hang out down in, in those, oh, really? those parts of New York. Is that right? Yeah, yeah sure. It's great. It's a, it's a great venue. It is. Well, thank you for the plug. Absolutely. It's been, it's been wonderful talking with you. You, you certainly did. Why don't we... <laughs> uh, uh, why don't we, uh, you know, Moni Moni is one of my favorite songs of all time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, and then I'll play your version uh, of it sure. the bitter end, and we'll close out with that. That sounds great. Well, Moni Moni, you know, is it's, it's this is a true story. We uh, had uh, this is we we made the original record back in 1968, and we. Um, we're just looking to put together an old party rock record. That was the whole idea. I always loved party rock. I always loved what it uh, did to a crowd and how people would jump to the dance floor. And so um, uh, we pieced this thing together. And um, finally, we were, you know, we had the song written, but but Richie Cordell, my songwriting partner, and I, uh, the night before we were supposed to go in and do the vocal. Um, I, I still had no title to the thing. Mm-hmm. And we had the song pretty well written, but, uh, you know, it was a pretty nonsensical song. And, and But we still had no title, and we're looking for a girl's name, a two-syllable name. Uh, we're looking for, like, a Sloopy or a Boney Maroney or something crazy. And everything we came mm-hmm. up with sounded so dumb. So we threw our guitars down, and we went out on the terrace. This is when I lived in New York. And we lit up a cigarette, and we look up and into the, new, the nighttime sky of New York. And the first thing we see is the Mutual of New York Insurance Company building, M-O-N-Y, with the dollar sign in the middle of the O, and it gave you the time and the weather and everything. And we just started laughing because 
that was the perfect name that we were. It's like God just gave us the name. Here's the name. Um, and you know, and I've <laughs> often said, if we'd have been looking in the other direction, I was so desperate for a title, we would, we might have gone with Howard Johnson. But you know, or, or equitable. But it just didn't have that ring to it. That's a true story. That's how we got the name Moni. Your impression of God just now sounded a lot like Mark Lee. Yes, I'm, it's very quite accurate too. I understand. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to close with Moni. Moni, from uh, your very, and you can hear the enthusiasm in the crowd. Amazing performance at the bitter end. Uh, Tommy, it has been a, a, an incredible honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank on you. Show. Thanks for doing your homework. I really appreciate it. It was a wonderful interview. Thanks, man. Oh, anytime. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night, Tommy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. And this is Tommy James with Moni Moni. Right now we want to do something we've done all over the world. 
Whenever we play this song, there's no reason we should do it right here at the bitter end. We want you to help us keep it in the groove. Sweet Cherry Wine 
Uh, came out in 2010 on Aura Records. Check that out. Hold the Fire, it's called. And last but not least, of course, for this upcoming holiday season, I Love Christmas by Tommy James. Big thank you to Mr. Tommy James for appearing tonight on the program. If it ain't showbiz, it ain't a biz. Hit the brakes, Florence. Good night, everybody. <laughs> 